The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. Alright, so I have the privilege of introducing my colleague and boss, Brandon Spun. He uh, is the Dean of Academics at New College Franklin. And you've been with the college for... 12 years about. 12 years, and really was helped shape the whole program and curriculum. And, um, and at some point he's going to kind of dissolve into the walls. I think that's what I've heard. Uh, but to give you a little background on Brandon's education, he has an MA in liberal arts from St. John's College. And he's finishing up this summer an MA in philosophy um, from Holy Apostles. And then he'll be pursuing his PhD soon. And he uh, just completed a commentary on Plato's Theaetetus, which is excellent. And we kind of taught it together this year. Uh, so he's uh, fishing around for publishers right now. And it's going to make a huge splash. and going to make him tons of money. Everybody's been <laughs> itching for the Theaetetus commentary, but uh, look for that. Uh, so it's my privilege to introduce Brandon to his topic, uh, Subalternation in the Liberal Arts, Friendship and Vocation. Or vocation and friendship with God? Yes. Right. Excellent. Thank you, guys. Okay. Yes. We have begun. So, how he loves us. Um, I'm thinking about the reflection we had with Job this morning with uh, wisdom literature that uh, we need good counsel. And so I pray that we would have some of the counsel of the Holy Spirit and that um, any, anything untrue or false would be cast out, um, that he would make his truth and love known to us. So I tried to get underneath some of the basic questions we were asking to get at some of the ends that we're after. And the way I framed that was thinking about the basic aims of education. And then some of the questions that were proposed in terms of freedom, servility, and being servant leaders. And the moment we ask about education, we are talking about our whole vocation at that point. We are already at a fundamental question. Um, So it's really important we get that right and that we think seriously about that, which People here have really shown capacity and a care to do that. Um, We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So I'm going to read through a few aspects of the introduction, and then I'm going to start working through sections of the paper and just ask for feedback, responses, questions, corrections, so let me begin with the, with the introduction, then we'll get past the painful part. So this essay will attempt to clarify our subject matter. Its chief goals will be threefold. First, to show how these questions belong not to the academy as such, but to the Christian life, to every human life, especially to those who are in Christ, though. Second, to indicate how Christian classical traditions provide a pattern for navigating those questions, that is, whether we're free, whether we're servants, in what sense, Um, and what are the aims of education. And third, to show the resolution to these questions, the relation between our freedom and our 
call to obey, to serve, to love, um, can't be simply resolved definitionally, though we can um, arrive at certain kinds of definitions. They have to be arrived existentially. We need wisdom. Uh, We need friendship with God. Because that's the love which orders things right, as we've heard in the titles of the talk given before. Uh, So I'm going to restate this in a different way, that Christian education and vocation are realized only through friendship with God. And there's three conclusions. First, then how we use or whether we use the liberal arts is resolved only by weighing ends and means. And that's a specific human activity is to think about ends and means. Um, Second, this work of ordering, because we're ordering ends and means, belongs principally to wisdom. That's the work of wisdom is to order. Um, that's, that's, the, that's what belongs to wisdom. It's to recognize what's high, what's low, what's first, what's last, what's in between. And a recovery of wisdom is bound up with an understanding of the person, with, our, with what the person is and what their destiny is. So we have to discern various ends and means to negotiate these orders of value and also orders of causality. And that occurs in a very special way through friendship with God, a conscious awareness of the radical active benevolence of God, of a creator who upholds, redeems his creature, so that vocation and education can only really be contextualized in Christ, in the mystery of divine love. Um, And that's what makes what we do personal, that when we fall short of knowledge of the friendship of God, our actions, our judgments, what we do with ourselves um, cannot arrive at that supremely personal devotion that we're called to do. And it falls back into something instrumentalizing. Divine friendship alone permits the creature to direct himself as a creature to God, to the creator. And then that allows us to deal with the complexity of life. But wisdom is a personal habit. Um, It's one which comprehends the unity of a diverse order. And the liberal arts tradition, and I'm going to be working through the liberal arts largely from the framework of the quadrivium, but I'm not narrowing liberal arts to that. Uh, The liberal arts can be humanities. Liberal arts can be um, various ways and approaches toward those arts which free and uh, perfect man in a, in a limited way and aid toward our lives dedicated to God. Uh, they are an unnecessary good. Um, Christians can be saved without the liberal arts, uh, but they are still very good. And there's good reasons everyone said we, we should um, be thinking about the liberal arts. So in thinking about them, I'm, I'm not employing a really strict relation to them, but how do we think of it, particularly in this mode of quadrivium, that's going to help us think about what they do. But a study in the humanities can do this. A study in the quadrivium can do this. A study, I'm trying to think of another mode of liberal arts. Um, those are probably the chief modes I would think through. Uh, quadrivium, trivium, and humanities are kind of the two major modes that they've, they've been approached through. But um, that this kind of education, and in particular the way I'm going to walk through the quadrivium briefly, uh, contributes to that. They contribute to certain habits of heart and mind, and I'm using habits in that 
kind of Aristotelian or virtue sense, because that's what I'm after, is what are the virtues necessary to live with God? And another way to put that is, what are the virtues we need to be put um, into mind of that we prayerfully need to be praying for and desiring and seeking? Uh, what do we need God to do in us? So now we're out of the kind of convoluted explanation of where I'm going, which may not really give you a great idea of that, but it's going to have something to do eventually with subalternation. I'll use the word and then we'll move on. So the, the next section <laughs> is educating who, educating what. And my big point there is that the word, the term human education is redundant. We are the only creatures who are educated. We are the only creature. We're not only the only creatures who are educated. We are creatures who stand or fall on education. Your life will be lived well or poorly based on education. Now, I'm obviously using education. I hope you're hearing this in the full sense, right? Not just what you do at college, not just high school, but in every sense, human life depends on education. You, we cannot even imagine what it would look like without education. It's, it's, it's virtually unpicturable. Um, it would be bestial. Any reflections on that? Any? Can angels be educated? Um, we're stepping outside of com- revealed yeah, theology to some degrees, you, you but, but if in the tradition, um, no. I, okay, I, I, think you're, yeah. I think you're right. That, yeah. And how do you know that, I mean, that only... Human animals can be educated. I would distinguish between training and education. We would look at the way in which they habitually live out their lives, that the weaver bird makes its weaver nest, and it doesn't say, what kind of nest shall I build? So in the normal, ordinary course, you look at a certain type of animal, and in general, they live a certain way. We have to determine how we live. There's a huge gap, even if some animals do just... Yeah. Is there some kind of um, habituation or what we might call training? More than average. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's going to go off in 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that's a really important thing to press on. I think it's especially important for students coming in. Many of them doubt that difference. Many of them don't even see it. Lewis's animal pain is very yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, well, the animals love and experience pain and are important creatures, uh, they but they so. are in no way like us. No. Um, and by no way, I didn't mean in there's no overlap, yeah. but that what we have excels them so radically that you have to be Peter Singer blind to, <laughs> to miss these claims. You have to almost be willfully blind. Yeah. When you, when you say that education is, is special mm-hmm. to human beings, I... And so this is, we're talking now about a, a, a special action property, something of, of man. Can you, capability. Capability. Can you, can you just give a definition of... of yeah, so it literally, the way I'm imagining it means that um, if, to put it, we need to decide how to live and what the good life is. We need to decide what we value and what we don't. We can't do it in the entire abstract um, I'm going to, uh, we can be absurd, but um, there are certain constraints on what we'll choose. But at the end of the day, um, we, we must make a determination of what's good and evil, correctly or incorrectly. But we, we have to decide that. And we decide that not just Cartesianly, but based on, first and foremost, our parents. That's why the home is so fundamental. 
that is the house, that is the um, first school of love. As I think I first heard that from Nate Sheridan, that the school of love is the home. It's the fund- fundamental place we learn what to love and what's valuable. And, and that's also why education is not something secondary to a human parent. It constitutes, it is a fundamental right of the parent, privilege, and responsibility that to educate is part and parcel of being a human parent. So yeah. are, would you say that your distinction of education and training corresponds to the distinction of the good and the useful? I would say that we are the only creature um, who can make that distinction. That okay. ends and means don't exist for animals. Mm-hmm. They may pick up a stick to use it towards a nest, but they're not determining the end in the same way. The end is already <coughs> determined for them. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's the ultimate end, which is we want happiness. We don't determine that. But we, what we do determine, we specify, is what that happiness is. Just like with a bride. You might want to get married, but you don't get married in the abstract. Right? You, you say, that's the woman I want. Mm-hmm. And, I have to do a friend with my <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's been seeing since. We were in the Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. So... That, that's the main gist of that section. I also talk about just that we're educating not just a species, but this person here and now, that child. We're not just parents abstractly. I am the parent of this boy here, and he's not just a boy. He's my son. There, there's this specific personal relationship that's there. So the language of um, the catechism says that we cannot have the privilege of saying we only have one kind of being that we can choose to educate or use one mode of catechesis. We have to respond to the person before us and probably thinking of the language of of Paul um, become what he needs to become before each person speaks them as they need to be spoken to. So that we're being formed by those we're educating to, and that's part of God's providence, uh, his care to us and to them. So that education is decisively personal. So that there's objective and subjective conditions to education. Objective, we're a certain kind of creature. Certain things are good for us. God's our ultimate end. Subjective, um, I don't like math, right? Like subjective, I don't like loud noises. Or um, So those are the, the aspects that, that go into the, the subjective call. We can't just kind of have a fixed mode and abstraction, which we, we need those too when we go into, to, as, whether as college teachers or as um, parents. But we need to respond to what's before us in some way. And so then I transition to Christian discipleship and just kind of echo that this is being developed further and in an exemplar mode in Christ. That he doesn't undo those facts. He um, exalts them and he confirms them by taking on flesh and living with the disciples as a man. That it's life together. That's what home life was. Life together. A life of love where the, one of the first fundamental lessons is, I love you, right? Life together with Christ. That's his mode of discipleship. Um, not without words and teaching, but, but life together. And you're drawing a pedagogical point from that, that the, the fundamental mode of, of instruction, so to speak, is, is personal being together with people. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, so some form of industrialized education is already denying what we are. Um, or if that's the mode, I, I wouldn't want to deny you know, sur servile arts, servile education, or um, even some kind of very systematic mode of education. But if that's the first and only education, something's missing. Servile arts presuppose a prior art, maybe not in time, but in terms of the human end. You cannot have the human society um, structured only around what's, what's servile, what's productive. Um, so I'm going to jump way ahead, and what I'm really sneaking in here is that human beings are good ends. They're not um, simply tools. Um, they are quasi-ends, which I'll get to in a moment, so let's hold off on that. Um, so Jesus confirms the personal order of education. Anything else on that? Want to jump in? Yeah. Well, I mean, that point just seems to have implications for thinking about the ideal size of an educational institution. Yes. Um, I mean, I was actually even struck by the Sturm thing that him, he was arguing that you, you, he wants to have a fairly large educational community, and they're divided into groups of ten. Like my, my mental image of the early modern school would, was kind of one-room schoolhouse, hmm. and he's talking about hundreds, right? And his, so, and I know your, your institution is very small. I mean, did you have thoughts on what is the largest scale on which you can have this education as almost familial yeah. As opposed to industrial. Yeah, we, we've talked about different sizes. I think whatever size we end up at, the classroom size is limited, right? So groups of 10 would be different than saying, um, uh, even if there's 100 students, that there's, there's groups of 10. We've, we've talked about keeping the classroom size somewhere between 12 and 15. Lower end, better. So possibly a school of around 60 or 100 um, and there's various questions that come into that in terms of sustainability, faculty numbers, things like that. Um, and then also, once you um, get a certain size, you have to split classes. So there's various ramifications to it. Mm -hmm. But yes, those are important questions for us. And keeping things small and whether at a discipleship number of 12 or somewhere near that is very important to us. So that there's actual discipleship going on. And so that there's uh, time and relation and space in the classroom itself and outside the classroom for students, yeah. Okay, so the next section is called a norm and means an end. The norm I draw is that uh, the person is a good. Uh, this does not mean that the person is, um, that their heart is upright and good, but it means that they have value and dignity. And this is because of them both choosing ends and means and because of Christ's love for them, the way he loves them, the way he cares about them. I'll unpack that more in the next section. I know I said that. I'm not going to keep kicking it down the road forever. The main point in this section, though, is education has to be an education, not just in ends, but means. The example I give is a welding college. You can't just show welding students really nice uh, welded joints and kind of say, go out there. You show them all these vast things. You show them uh, the, the blowtorch. You, you talk about materials. You talk about conditions. You talk about all of these things. That's what constitutes education, is not just the end, though that's the first and most important thing, but it's actually how do you negotiate between those two things. That's what human ed education does. It's, it's relating ends and means. It presupposes an order, presupposes an end, and a way to coordinate those things. 
I get the connection between education and prudence, and the ends means mm -hmm. uh, discussion shows up in in various descriptions of, of prudence. But what about the other virtues? Why not education, forming people in justice or temperance or courage? Sure. Why the, the why the focus exclusively on on prudence? I'm focusing on wisdom for the paper. So. I, I would include right. it. Those are all means. Yeah, they, they would be included in how do I live for God? Um, I would need those other virtues. Uh, I, it, I don't think it's conceivable to honor God without virtue or courage or Just any of those other really things. Really quickly, so yeah. in, in some of the, of the traditions, justice is the master virtue mm -hmm. in, in the, uh, among the cardinals. Mm -hmm. but, but for you, the prudence that it's, is the master virtue and the others are... Oh, absolutely. Without, without prudence, you can't direct anything. Without prudence or without the intellect or without what's the rational one, the rest are not directed I, towards I an end. I just put a note yeah. there that there yeah. is another very well-established tradition mm -hmm. that would make justice the master virtue. Right. I think cardinal. at that point you're thinking of the goodness of the house. My question is how does it get done? What, who's the director, the general? Um, and I'm also, just to make a note, I'm not locating here prudence just naturally. I really mean supernatural wisdom here, the gift of the Holy Spirit, because we're talking about friendship with God. Um, so we're, we're really in the order of faith, hope, and love at this point. Uh, not disregarding those things. but So just to reflect a little bit on person as um, the dignity of the person, and this was something I mentioned earlier. This is from Anderson and Granados say, the words image and likeness, Genesis, tell us that from the beginning, man is the one to whom God addresses his word and whose special status lies in its capacity to answer his divine call. So vocation there, call. That what, what's one way to think about the Imago Dei? It's that God addresses himself to us. He speaks to us. And that's what, yes, sir. Yeah, when I read the paper, I'm disappointed, um, and I see the same problem in a lot of Catholic encyclicals, is connection in Imago Dei to dignity. And then you're speaking of ends. Dignity seems to be a word that's been co-opted by Kant. Mm -hmm. And then you have the kingdom of ends. He talks about everybody's an end in themselves. You can't turn them into a thing. But he does that without connection to the Imago Dei. Mm. And so I think dignity should have a, a life of its own. Whereas the image of God is definitely a Christian notion. And I think the two can compete with one another. Because mm. we, we are so saturated with Kantian morality. Mm. But I don't think that's Christian morality. So dignity seems to be a problematic term. I'm not mm. sure dignity really is a biblical term. Yeah, it's probably not. I, I would just say that man has a status which is worthy of honor in some sense. That we owe something to man that we don't owe to any other creature. And to jump way ahead, um, that God chose to die for man, um, that he loved man. And so he bestowed love on him, and not just in a nominalistic sense, but he made man to do that. That man was that creature he made, and so he has a certain standing in the order of creation. And not just as, you know, species-specific, but in the personal love God bestows and acts historically with man for him. And so that that's where... I'd be fine saying, yeah, it's probably not a biblical word. We might be able to derive something else biblically um, to describe that. But I think what it gets at, and Kant's intuition, which is there's something special about this, these people I'm living with. 
but for yeah. him, it's a moral law. It's not God. Right. Yeah. Well, Kant's problematic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He does not go far enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And so I wouldn't want to stay there. I'll try to address that in terms of the order of loves. Um, So we need education in means. Um, I have the word Boethius here. I don't know why. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's because both Thomas and Boethius give this um, in, in their consolation and then in Summa, they walk through, okay, so what is the good? What is the means by which we'll have happiness? Is it wealth? Is it honor? Is it this? Is it that? That we need to figure out what that is. And we don't do it um, without aid, without instruction. And so we have the instruction of the family I've mentioned and uh, by God's grace, we also have the instruction of the state and we have the instruction uh, most palpably of the church, which um, definitively, clearly declares what the good is. Skipping things of uh, Christian tradition, use, and enjoyment. Okay, so I open this section up marking a number of verses which describe the way in which we deal with things which are not ends in themselves. Um, we are pilgrims here, seeking a city with foundations. We're servants, um, even as and because we're free, we're not slaves, but rather serve God as sons and friends who know what their master is about. But we're to count all things as loss in light of the prize set before us. We're to take all things captive so that they can be placed in subjugation. Um, and that's our reasonable worship in which we pour out our lives in thanksgiving. There's two points. First, that means that we do in the Christian life, grapple with means in light of Christ, in light of the true end, um, that all things should be hated in respect of the love due to God. So let's just start with the hard one. All things should be hated in light of that, in light of God. But second, the gospel itself upholds a personalistic norm, implying the human person has a special share in the final end, not as a mere instrument, but as a proximate participatory good, which suggests our hatred of family and friends and that all subjugation must be understood relative to the end. That's not absolute opposition. We don't, right, Christ doesn't say, like, hate your parents and loathe them, but in respect to the love you bear me, be ready to part, and that should be subordinated, right? Not talking about feelings here, but in terms of ranking of order and what directs that love, what love comes first and directs that love. Any reflections? Okay. So now I've, from scripture, I'm now moving just to Christian tradition on Christian doctrine. St. Augustine is reflecting on use and into- enjoyment, the, the uti and frui. I don't know if it's uti. Uti, I think. Uti, all right. Um, so he is thinking through signs and what's signified. It's, it's a really interesting um, kind of mess of stuff in on Christian doctrine, but he has this this well known image of I always call it the caravan. There's no caravan in there, but that's that's what I picture in my head, where he says um, he's thinking of the intellectual moral life because he's thinking of knowing um, what's signified and not mistaking the sign. He's concerned about letter and spirit, and the letter kills, so you don't want to rest in the letter. But he's also thinking of um, 
ends and means. He says, for to enjoy a thing is to rest with satisfaction in it. That's furwi. That's to rest, to cleave with satisfaction for its own sake. To use, on the other hand, is to employ whatever means are at one's disposal. And then he says it would be as if you were on a trip somewhere. We're just going to say caravan. And if the motions of the journey charmed you in such a way that you lost sight of where you were going. Right? And so you, maybe you even settled down. You saw a pretty mountain and you stopped here. Um, or um, we can think about all the various things that charm our hearts. And he's, so he's saying we must distinguish between use and enjoyment. He then ends up declaring or asking what can be enjoyed, what can be used. And he says there's only one thing that can be enjoyed, and that's God. There's only one thing that can be cleaved to for its own sake. Everything else must be used, including man. Including man. He then goes through how we need wisdom, how wisdom became incarnate, and how wisdom um, has made that possible. And then after that, and restating that everything must be used for God, he then says, and we may also enjoy man <laughs> in God. <laughs> and, it's an interesting yeah. blending of the use and fruition there at the end of, of the Doctrine of Christiana. What, what are you thinking of? Well, it's, we can also enjoy man, but there's a using man to enjoy God. That's how you enjoy man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right. It's, it's a trinity of use, fruition, mm. and use, fruition. Nice. Yeah. Hmm. So the way he works through that, though, is he asks this question, or part of what he does, um, is he asks the question, does God enjoy us or use us? God cannot enjoy us because God cannot find his end, his rest in man. God God is already uh, happy. He doesn't need something to rest in. Uh, So he says God must use us, but use implies a need. And so how does God use us? He says he uses us for our own sake. He, in other words, um, he uses us so that we may be happy. For our good, he uses us. Providentially, might you say. His providence requires his use of us. But the purpose of creation is... We, so let's say we say the purpose of creation is God's glory. Because he's already glorious... What does that mean? It means that we shall know that glory, and that is our end, that he has blessed us to partake in that glory. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying something different than you. What I'm trying to emphasize is that um, it's another way to say he loves us. His use is love, yeah. that we're not sheer instruments. Yeah. Is that? Providence in the, like, as, as in provision. Yes, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. provision and order, all that. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Any reflections, pushback, clarification? So can you clarify, um, if you could connect the dots from this, um, use, enjoyment, uh, enjoyment, use, uh, God using us for our own enjoyment, connecting that with subalternation and wisdom? Or are you going to do yes. that? I'm, I'm headed there. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. But just... Um, it seems like a lot of the theological tradition reflecting on you know, the relationship of man and creation to God. It is a manifestation of what God is after and that, that the scriptures kind of move towards. It's not an increase or 
in any respect of God's glory. It's the unveiling. It the is. Yeah. As long as where where I, I would want to be really clear on, it's particularly an unveiling in us that we are temples made to be temples of God, to rejoice in God, and to rejoice and rejoice in his truth, that he has done it for us. Yeah. That I'm just thinking John 3.16. Right. It, it is his love. It is, um, his glory is not, um, it, it, it's, it's a calling into him. Hmm. Um, it's, you can't, what I'm trying to protect here is this idea, I exist to give glory to this being, but I'm indifferent to that glory. That is my fulfillment and my end. And I've been blessed to be called into that. I will be happy in doing that. That's my vocation. But I'm, I'm an instrument, and I'm also personally loved to have been called into that. I'm not just a stop sign that's instrumental. We're indifferent to whether it's octagons or squares or whatever it is in Europe, right? Um, the Imagio Dei is a sign of God, which is um, a beloved sign and a sign by being like him and sharing it called, to be called into the life of God. Are you familiar with Wolterstorff's Justice as Love? Wolterstorff. Yeah, I mean, that, that occurred to me. Because he, he works through a development of like a C.S. Lewis's Four Laws. Mm-hmm. But he has a, he's an analytic philosopher. It, it overlaps, but it's, it's, it's also different. Hmm. Talks about how, in what sense of love does God love us? And he includes also, it's a love of benevolence, it's his good right. will toward us. Yeah. Which is then, do we have to speak in uti or fruity with respect to God's relationship? I mean, do we have to? No, no. Okay. I, I think I'm these cool are these are ways of breaking it out. So that was Augustine's okay. way. We yeah. could go just to scripture and use scriptural language okay. where we've got both, right? That's the tension I'm trying to draw here is in one sense, scripture says, for his glory alone, right? Mm-hmm. And the other sense, it's John 3.16. So I'm suggesting, kind of like in the way Piper does with Christian hedonism, mm-hmm. those things are really one. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. So all this is is just to say there's an order of morris, um, which means that man can be loved, and loved in some way is an end, as long as that end is linked to God in, in, in a very profound way. Um, obviously, we can idolize Man is really one of the first creatures where we idolize in some way, ourselves and others. So jumping ahead to subalternation, liberal arts and subalternation, we've thought about the order of the heart, the order of the will. What I'm switching to is intellectual ordering because we've got to do both um, in our lives. We, We have to order things in the mind. We have to order things in our heart. And when I say we've got to, I don't mean let me now like think things into the right order of my heart, then I'm all set. Let's see, my wife goes here, this person goes here, that cat goes here, and God goes here, right? Um, he, he's training this into us through grace and through all his providences, um, sometimes painfully. But we have to be aware of that and aspiring to that. We're, we're called to that and that to surrender things, to bring things to him so that we can be changed by him. So in the liberal arts, we're dealing with a... Science of the one and the many in some way. Uh, and that's to give away the, the connection. That's precisely what we've been talking about the whole time. Various loves, many loves, ordered by one love, one first principle. It orders them all. It's not the same love. My, my love of my friends, it's not God's love, my love for God. 
but it can be moved by that. Um, it can be, um, that love can be directed to them. And there can be many objects of love, but there's one chief object, right? So I'm just thinking through the great commandment. One commandment, the other like it. So similarly, there is, we can do this just through quadrivium. There is a science of arithmetic. There's a science of geometry, music, and astronomy. In each case, you can take one principle and grasp the complex whole, and that's number. So that number allows you to understand geometry. It allows you to understand music. It allows you to understand astronomy not according to their proper principles. What I mean by that is you are subalternating those sciences under number insofar as they are quantifiable. We, uh, you could not build into music from number alone. Right? We can't like just do a bunch of math here and suddenly have music. Music has something to do with matter, something to do with time, um, Similarly, astronomy has something to do with these things out there that are not just numbers. Uh, geometry also, lines are not numbers per se. But insofar as they're quantifiable, I can know one science, one principle, which governs them all without doing violation to them. So they're not reducible to that. Absolutely. They emerge from it in some fundamental, fundamental by emerging, I don't mean evolve out of it. The I mean, science does. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the quadrivium sciences do. Mm -hmm. So that you have many sciences unified by one science. And so this has to do with our aspiration to know, is we want to know all things. But there's not one science by which to know it that we know. I can jump way ahead and say there is one unit or principle which would measure everything, and that would be the logos. But since I don't look into God's essence to know everything... I do something like that really, really, really far off. I play at that in the quadrivium. And a student experiences a unified vision, which is their desire. What we desire to know is all things in some way. And to know it all through one thing, to see how it's united. Yeah. Are the four categories of, of the quadrivium in this message to be comprehensive of all of of creation. They'd be, yeah, like a type of it almost. They, right, Before there are types, other arts. They're, yeah. they're meant to include, it's an assertion about yeah. all of creation. Right, moving from abstract, the most abstract number, to the concrete in some way with astronomy. And the, and the source of that interpretation of the quadrivium is, is there, a, is there a key person who says, by the quadrivium we mean <coughs> to represent types of the four dimensions by which creation can manifest itself yeah, I, they're all united I, in number. I'm drawing from a number of sources here. One, I think the strongest source is Plato, where he's giving in book seven. Yeah, so. Book seven, he is giving an account of the quadrivium, and he, it culminates in astronomy, and he <coughs> says, but if you think the goal is to just look at the stars in the sky, you've missed the point. The, the real pattern is to be, or the real goal is to be moved to turn to the divine pattern. Um, the, I'm also drawing from um, Thomas's commentary on Boethius de Trinitate, where he's talking about um, the seven liberal arts, and he says, are these absolute, the seven? He's like, no, there's other arts, but these are useful. These are the ones that were chosen for a specific reason. And then um, I'm 
adding in from various other teachers. One, one of the chief teachers I'm drawing from here uh, is this. He is head or he was president of Thomas Aquinas College, Dr. Newmar, talking about how a – I'll back up a second. The goal was to know all things in the uh, – for the philosopher in some way. It was to know the entire created order. And we would not be satisfied if we could not move particularly in some way to the first cause. So that when we're doing science, like the, the quadrivium, you get a taste of that goal, of some totalizing vision, but it's not perfect. And it belongs more to physics, metaphysics, ethics, to start moving out into the world and ultimately to theology to do this. So the quadrivium, right, was that, that stepping stone into those higher sciences. It's preparatory to that, and that, that's the place of it. I'm kind of skimming over all this preparatory aspect, which is in the paper, so that the quadrivium is preparatory to this totalizing vision, which is in theology, but even theology by itself doesn't teach you geometry. So there's various ways these sciences are ordered and related without subsuming or kind of just um, destroying the other sciences. Uh, so that the, the, the idea of the quadrivium is that the principles of arithmetic, I'm now quoting Numar, are few, odd and even, right? Um, prime number and composite, really simple things, so that students who are, are young can get a vision of the cosmos that is easy. It, it's not complete, it's not perfect, because the cosmos is something other than number, but number belongs to the cosmos in some way. Uh, as depending on Pythagorean, it is number. Um, Aristotelian, it, the proper accident of matter is number. So, so in that sense, this is like a foretaste of the coming sciences. It's also a foretaste of the habit of relating various orders, and that's really what I'm after in this paper, is the habit of ordering those sciences and relating them. But the, the point I'm skipping over is that physics, metaphysics, ethics are way harder than arithmetic. Um, you, what do you need to know ethics, right? You can't, like, ha, it would be a terrible idea to, it's a, it's, a, it's a good idea to teach ethics to our children. It's not a good idea to do, like, work through a system of ethics, right, from, like, a prolegomena or something like that at, at age four. At least, I mean, you might have a special child. I would not do that to any, any child, <laughs> right? Because you need experience, Right? How do you decide what's good or evil? Or metaphysics, where you're not just dealing... In math, you're dealing with um, one cause, which is formal cause. You're dealing with all causes in metaphysics. You're dealing with act and potency, one many. Um, you're, you're dealing with just a host of com complex things. So, so that's why the quadrivium is excellent, because it's preparatory. It's a simpler step, um, not an end. All right. Everyone breathing? It's, it's, it's a little breathless, but... Okay, great. Um, any question, um, issue? Yes, sir. Could you elaborate on uh, subalternation relative to Aquinas yeah. asked the question? Yeah. Is theology <laughs> a subalternated science? Yes. So, so he says mm. yes, but it's odd because it's the only time subalternated science is actually the highest. Right. Um, it, in that case, let, let me back up, explain subalternation. Yeah. I didn't do a good job of that. And then I'll do whether theology is subalternated. So subalternation, I, I mentioned it, but I, I could, it could bear mentioning again, is that 
music is then subalternated to arithmetic. If you think about the square of opposition where you have logical statements, all these are that, then you have some these are that. If you had all material things are extended um, and you had I am extended, therefore I am a material thing, only some of me is material. I'm, I'm not trying to get into like, but there's something more than material here, okay? Let's not go down like a worrisome Cartesian route or how this works. But, but in other words, insofar as um, I'm extended, the things I can say about matter apply to me. But that doesn't mean everything about matter or only what can be said about matter can be said about me. So that's how, in a similar way, insofar as music is um, mathematical or quantifiable, I can apply the principles of arithmetic. Insofar as there's more, there may be something else that that is required for that. Um, And that's why it has a different appeal to... um, the, the ethical sense and pleasure than mathematics does, even though those pleasures are related and, and intermingled. Um, so that's just as a reminder, that's a higher science or a more universal science applied to a lower without subsuming it. Um, when Tom, it's, it's a beautiful conclusion, which is he asks, the question is whether or not theology is a science. It's an alternative science. Yeah. Well, the, the question he's asking is whether it's a science. In other words, whether it's a knowledge. And for it to be a science, you have to have first principles. And the first principle of theology is God. And so you would have to know God. And so the answer in that sense would be no, except that we cleave to God by faith. So his answer becomes, for God, it is a science. For us, it's a subalternated science not in the same way. It's subalternated as the imperfect to the perfect. We share in it by faith, by cleaving to God, and through a participation in the divine nature. So that by faith we attain to those first principles, which you could think of as enumerated in uh, the creed. Um, and in some sense of God. But we don't look into that principle itself. And that, that's why we have the order of faith-seeking understanding, is because understanding would describe our knowledge of principles in a science so that a mathematician has understanding of math, of like odd and even, I understand it. Uh, there, there may be mysteries I haven't fathomed in it, but can I define odd and even? Yes. Do I understand God? No. So that's why the mode of our life, which is we want to know that first principle is faith, as our first principle, seeking understanding. But by faith, we cleave to one who has a science. And the way he's thinking about it, what you're talking about, is the the musician, or I'll take the, um, the chemist, might know... I always go back and forth how to do this. The engineer might not know the Pythagorean theorem, the proof of it. They should know the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> but they might not be able to prove it. They might just know it. But there's somebody else who knows it, the mathematician, so that the engineer science is subalternated to the mathematician. The engineer could say, hey, show me this, and then he could learn it. Similarly, theology is subalternated. Our knowledge of God is subalternated to, a, to one who knows that science. 
and that's God. And so our science, that's why our theology is firmer than any human science, because it's based on God's own knowledge. But we cleave to it by faith. And that's why the language of knowledge pops up in the Bible. It's not that Paul's saying we know as in we comprehend, but by faith we cleave so firmly and to one who knows so perfectly that we can actually call this knowledge so that we can build upon this science and say things about it with confidence. Yes, sir. And also to add to that, for Thomas Aquinas, for Augustine, uh, faith is a virtue. So yes. And that, that, that would be different from Plato. Yes. Yeah. Just, just, just yeah. So, I, and that's that's helpful because the way we're holding on to that is personal. We are we're, we're in intimate relationship with God, and that's how we hold those things. Um, great. Okay. So next section is divine governance, and so what what I've moved from is ordering love, ordered sciences, to ordered government. So how does God govern? And um, the claim is that he governs by wisdom. Hopefully that's not too radical here. Um, So by wisdom, he makes things to be what they are, when they are, how they are. Um, But he gives other beings not only their existence, their existence as causes. Meaning he governs not just uh, univocally, but he also governs through things. Any, you guys good on that? Could you explain what someone would mean if they said he governed genetically? Um, my parents taught me how to tie my shoes, and someone would go, no, God taught you that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. So that's what's at stake here, yeah. is he's using other things to cause things. Um, how does God uphold me? Through the heat of the sun. Through, through all the other things in the universe that I need. I'm contingent dependent being, and my being depends on God and all the other things God upholds, and so on those things too. Yeah. Now can you say that? Now that, that was a great question, but now can you, can you state your claim again? Yeah. With respect to the mode in which God governs? Um, he doesn't govern. Um, univocally probably was not the proper term for it. I was using that real quick just to say... Um, we can't say God is causing everything in the same way. I'm not trying to get into like the one divine nature doing one act, but the fact that um, when, he, when you are born again and receive the Holy Spirit, that is something different than when you learn to tie your shoelaces. He's operating differently, at least. The immediate, immediate? Yeah, I mean, I, I know, like, the moment you try to parse out the difference between, like, miracle or grace, it gets really messy, like, to define miracle. And so I'm, I'm trying not to get into that here. But he clearly works both. I, I think that's, that's probably well, the, the clearest way. Faith makes that, that's how it puts it. That's yeah. Not, without taking away the, I can't remember the language, the, but it's secondary causes. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. causes. Contingently, so, contingently, yeah. freely, freely, yeah. etc. Yeah, but I think immediately, immediately is helpful for, for what you're talking yeah, about there. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. There's a key idea of Luther's doctrine of vocation, that God works through us in our callings. He gives us our daily bread through farmers and bakers. He creates new life through fathers and mothers. And uh, 
that's part of his emphasis on that, is, is to hear that. And even in salvation, of course, Luther with himself means of grace, it's through the word. The preaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, through the sacraments, which bear the word uh, that he creates faith in us. And so, yeah, that, that's well, Luther a, used the term masks, right? Masks, masks that God yes. wears. Yes, uh, that's right. Vocation is the mask of God. God is serving us well, sure through humanity. <laughs> <laughs> right up there, facing it right up there. Yeah, facing it. Right, very COVID. That's not the Yeah. So he, uh, he governs all things by wisdom, and that does not revoke the dignity of his creature. Um, and Jesus is the confirmation of this. Uh, he restores and upholds the creature. He is the lover of that which he has made, and he renews the face of the earth. So in Christ, the law which man is called to live by is fulfilled by man. He has saved us through a man. Can you say that again? I think it's like, like awesome. Yeah. But it, it went by really fast. Um, Can you say that again? Yeah. I, I stepped away from the text. Post-lunch session where you have to say everything twice. Yes. Um, so can I, can I just read? I'm going to read from here instead. Okay. So Jesus does not revoke the dignity of his creature. He restores and upholds it. Our Redeemer is God, the true creator and lover of that which he has made, who renews the face of the earth. In Christ, the law which man is called to live by is truly fulfilled by man, even as it is fulfilled and transfigured by divine love. Therefore, our image and likeness to God is restored and exalted by God in and through man. We are saved, or God saves us in man, by man. We are saved by man. Yeah. So that all things are brought to subjection to God the Father. which makes possible an exemplary realization of divine government in us and through us. Divine government is perfect because God comprehensively knows himself, he's the end, and the means, which include us, and how that will be realized. So subalternation was a picture of how God governs. The ordered loves is a picture of how God governs. So there's an analogy I'm going to draw. This is from uh, Metaphysics 12, and Thomas picks this up, and it's the analogy of the way a military leader, a, um, a general, governs. The way a general governs, there's various ranks. There's the cavalry, there's the artillery, there's other ones. Any other ones? That's it, right? So Engineers. Engineer, right? There's all these diverse orders, and the general doesn't go to the cavalry and say, this is how you hold the horse's reins. Right? He doesn't go to the artillery and say, this is how you hold a gun. What he says is, I want you here at this time. I want you to accomplish this mission. He orders them toward the end. He doesn't violate their formality. Mm-hmm. And that's God's government. Is He's ordering all things according to their natures in some way. Now, he does more than that. Right? Um, Christ is also God. But he doesn't cease being man by that. The, the formality of man is not absent. From that, so is this, I don't, maybe I'm misconstruing, but mm-hmm. is this getting back to what you what you were saying about how we naturally, as human beings, have to learn by being with 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is that we have to learn to do what humans do and do it well right. and do it in light of Christ's teaching. So God has to teach us it in a properly human way. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, so he teaches us as man so that we can live as men so he can accomplish his mission through us so that he can govern through us. so that his wisdom deals with various orders of being without obviating them. It's not all shadows. It's not all... Um, it's, my parents really did teach me, even though it was by God that, that they were able to teach me. So if man's to be like God, if he's to govern, he needs to respect the nature of each thing. He can direct himself and all things to the worship of God only by a loving knowledge of wisdom. So thanks be to God, there has been that knowledge made known to us. So this has significant implications to the to education um, that God operates through His creature. And by the way, this this has come up again and again whether God works through means. The opening of on Christian doctrine is whether or not um, people should be taught how to interpret and preach Scripture, right? Like people are objecting to that needing to be taught, right? You should just be divinely inspired. And Augustine says that's pride. So God's government is realized uniquely in man. I go through that for a long time. Cosmic government, his manner of government is complex. And then I get to vocation. You guys still in there? Kind of? Okay. <laughs> You're doing great. Just to let you know, we've, yes. we've, uh, we've got 15 minutes. Okay, I'm going to hit the vocation stuff then. Great. <sighs> okay. So... If we are to take the work of God in hand, which includes us, right, we, we have to act, we have to know who we are, we have to take ourselves in hand and act, we have to know who and what we are. And so that's one of the chief objects of education, is to make known who we are. I spent, I skipped over um, just Calvin's opening institutes, right, knowledge of God, knowledge of man, those things are going hand in hand, if we're going to know who we are, if we're going to know who God is, we have to know both of those things. And so in education, just like living with Christ, we're getting to know what love is. We're getting to know who God is, and that's how we know our end. So that vocation is something realized personally, and that can't be done unless you know that God is the creator God. And what I mean by that is that he is the one who is the lover of his creature. Because without that, what we do is we reduce ourselves to instruments. It doesn't matter what I care about. It doesn't matter what I think, right? And we can't read Scripture well. If, if God's not the lover of his creature, we do not know how to read Scripture. It becomes opaque to us. Or if, if we're reading, um, you know, how do I know my vocation? My feelings, right? We need to know our feelings. We need to know our predilections, our talents. We need to know our... All of these things, this is where subalternation comes in, um, all of these things, and chiefly, of course, revelation, God's calling, scripture, what's revealed there, need to be known and then ordered. But it's not by, um, there's not a punch card. There's not um, a flow chart. You should be a plumber. You should be a preacher. It has to be discerned personally because that's going back. What is it to be created in the image of God? It's to, it's that God speaks to us. 
And so we have to be able to hear God speak, and he speaks to us through all the situations of our life, like you're saying, all the conditions of providence. And so we have to see him or believe that he works through those things and hear him. Yes, sir. Uh, something Dr. B brought up. Yes. Yeah. It was Luther's and the, the connection of vocation and how uh, for Luther the, uh, the cross is essential and that the individual person must die yes. and be born again in a sense, to send back into the world from God in God's likeness in a way imitating the creator by creating uh, you know, loving relationships uh, situations where, where love is, which is a union with God and his providential care um, so where does the cross thank you yeah I, I think that's that's so important is that we can't pass from our likes and predilections to vocation, but rather it's, it's through Christ that we move into those and read those. And that means they all have to take the, the stamp of a cross. But what that looks like is not like self-immolation, obviously, but it means learning to love with him. And he will work out the cross in our life. But that's going to be there. I don't have to like look out for my cross and grab it. I have to look out for what I'm called to love. It's primarily a vocation to love, and the form love will take, and God will ensure that is the cross. Yeah. Um, so that it, our vocation is a share in the cross. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Well, I was just saying that's awesome. Okay, great. great. <laughs> um, so the last section is just about knowledge of human destiny, um, and the only point I'll make there is that um, I was moved by our pastor was preaching on the transfiguration and he used, I think, the language of we're looking at the end of Revelation at the transfiguration. Um, and what that meant to me is what, do we, what did the disciples see when they saw Christ transfigured? What they saw um, was prior to the cross, a vision needed to go to the cross for the glory, for the joy set before him, Right? But what we're looking at is the destiny of man, is to be transfigured, is to shine with the light of God's glory. And so that's our vocation. And so everything has to be read in that. Um, I've skipped over the part where I've argued that the liberal arts is kind of like some of these other loves, a quasi-end, something that can be enjoyed but should not be an ultimate end. Um, it can, that, there's, that knowledge can be sought for for its own sake, but it can't be rested in. There is a knowledge. That's the idea of the transfiguration. There is a knowledge. There is a vision. There is a light which we will rest in, which will be the, the great Sabbath. And that learning is a taste of that. We all have a sense of do, when we do Euclid, when we, do, when we read a various text, that we kind of come home and rest. We don't finally rest there. But that even as, these, as we order education towards the service of God, part of its service... It, of real education is making known that there's, it is good to know certain things and that there's a vision, something that will be known, one who will be seen and we will know him as he knows us and that will be our final rest. And education in a very special way um, preserves that. Uh, yes, sir? I think you made the point in the paper on that point, which I think is really essential in clarifying the knowledge its own end but not its final end. You made, you made the analogy with Sabbath and Eucharist, so it would, I think you did. You okay. might have. I might have. Maybe I just inserted it. Yeah, go ahead. But the idea that it would be weird to say 
to put the Sabbath strictly in the category of use. Yes. Right. Yeah. But mm. make sure you use the Sabbath well because <laughs> the alternative is you rest in it as your final Sabbath and you never <laughs> right. work again. Right. Yeah. You're like, uh, but no, we all have that category that you do rest and enjoy a sort of fruition mm-hmm. of the Sabbath, but it's the sacramental foretaste yeah. of the final end. Thank you. Same thing with the, with the Eucharist, yeah. right? Um, and that's kind of what education right. is when you think of it in terms of for its own sake or as a type of enjoyment, not simply use, yeah. but not final enjoyment. And to take Pieper's discussion of this, which that last part is based off leisure basis of culture, where he really culminates is not in the liberal arts. He culminates in Christian worship as that leisure which protects us and, and reminds us that we have an end that's greater than, than servility. Uh, yes? But it sounds uh, like you're separating the Sabbath uh, from knowing. Whereas I guess the tradition of the beatific vision is it is knowledge. That's right. And you're only satisfied when you finally know as you've been known. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's an act of knowledge. Great. It's a, it's a theoretic vision. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not just resting but separate from knowledge, it seems to be the culmination of all the other knowledge. That's right. You're, Knowing the whole rather than the parts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and their intellect and will are yeah. interpenetrating. Right. And, and so we have a little of that when you do Euclid. There's something more special in the Sabbath, and there's something ultimate in, in the great Sabbath. But you'd agree it's an act of cognition. Cognition is the attainment of the good there. Yeah, yeah it's the way of possessing it. Yeah. Great. Any less comments or... Questions or heavy use of uh, uh, John Paul's two. Yes. Personalism yes. generally. I mean, yeah. That's you know, that, yeah, beautiful. I, I picked up on that there. I have again another book that I've just finished reading. Christian Smith. What is a person? He's hmm. sociology and Notre Dame, and he, he really tries to develop a more rigorous, analytically rigorous account of personalism. Is he a, a Christian author? Yes, he's or? Christian. Uh, he was evangelical, converted to Rome. Mm-hmm. So that after book book uh, itself. So that's, it's designed to be read by sociologists. So he prescinds from doing a lot of what he's done here yeah. for a particular purpose. Yeah. Although he, at the end, does have a lot of time. <laughs> but like, if you haven't figured it out, he wants to kind of... So that's a, cool. that's a good resource. Anything else? Reflections, complaints, tears? I have an unfair question. Yes. Um, so, kind of synthesizing what you've said <laughs> and taking these categories that you've given us, which is really helpful. Uh, you're at a different education conference, and you hear these dichotomies that we hear all the time in the classical world between use and enjoyment, yes. between liberal and servile, between for its own sake and like virtue or love God, between vocational and yeah. you know yeah. just recreational or whatever. Yeah. Right. And you're to give a um, uh, uh, an hour that? and a half talk. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a heuristic. Sorry. Give us that. You're, you're trying to give us a heuristic here in a sense for the idea of subalternation. Um, what would you say? Just you've already given us all the background. You just so give us the assertion. Would you say all of those are false dichotomies as long as you put them in the proper order? Is that like what you would say, or is that question? Yeah, I do think it is is a false dichotomy. I think people are protecting correct things generally by those by those divisions. I think they're really important, and we easily 
uh, myself included, right, are like, it's all, it's all about leisure, it's all about contemplation, or it's how can we, you know, make sure this is useful and we, we're pointing people. So, so th- those are real problems in terms, but the categories themselves are not opposed. Um, as long as they are. They're ordered, thank you, yeah. According to. Mm, love, <laughs> or wisdom, which is knowledge of that love, yeah. So knowledge of the friendship of God, knowledge of that ruling love, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a perhaps a tedious question, but Aquinas distinguishes between wisdom and prudence. Were you acknowledging that, or maybe aligning the two? Can Can I ignore it? Or ignore it? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I I'm assumed. Yeah. The way I understand this is that the gift of wisdom is a supernatural share in the knowledge by which God rules things and ordering things and a love of God. It's it actually based obviously in fear of God, a fear of his displeasure in some way, so that it's a filial love of God, which is ordering what, what we do. And so if I were to make up what's probably there or implied, it's that that would then rule prudence or inform it. Is that how you would understand it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved.